Happy to be here and to share God's Word with you, and I'm excited about the message we have to share this morning. Uh, this morning, we're, we're going to talk about the uh, character of Adam. Now, how many of you have ever gone back and tried to do some ancestry research in your family? Have anybody ever tried to do that before? I think it's pretty common for us to do that. We've got a lot of tools now that help us do that, but it's kind of natural for us to want to know where we come from, know our history, and know how that's shaped the situation that we live in today, how that shaped who we've become today. So if you're one of those people that does that ancestry research today, go ahead, when you're drawing your family tree, go ahead and draw the horizon, and we're going to give you the first name to put down there. <laughs> and you might get a couple more names that you can build from there, and that way you can start working from both ends. But, but all joking aside, um, it's really important for us to believe that Adam was a real person. Now, a lot of people who uh, maybe uh, follow over after different types of faith, faith in different gods, or maybe don't believe in God, think that this story of Adam that we have was just something that the writer of Genesis created just to kind of give them uh, an origin story or, or just them imagining what that would have been like. But I want us to think about Adam this morning as a real man that really lived, a man that was truly created by God, um, you know, Genesis isn't the only place we hear about Adam. Jesus talked about Adam. Jude and Paul in the New Testament, all of them talk about Adam being a real person that lived and uh, had feet on this earth. Exactly. You know, uh, if we look at the Bible, we can say that Adam lived probably about 930 years. Uh, obviously, the world was a little bit different when you could live in 930 years compared to 100, if you're lucky, these days. And... Um, it's kind of a broad range, but it, if you look at the scriptures, you can see that Adam had at least seven children. Uh, Jewish tradition says that he had uh, 56 children, 33 sons and 23 daughters. Uh, either way, a lot of people think he probably had a child every seven years or so. And so he had between seven and 60 children. So the trunk gets pretty broad pretty quick there at the bottom of the family tree. But uh, I, I think it's very important for us to think about this as Adam being a real person and to understand with an eye of faith that Adam truly was someone who lived on earth. Now, it's hard to find a picture of Adam. And if you Google search, there's a lot of things that aren't church appropriate. And that's due to an incident, a very big incident that we're going to read about this morning. Uh, but, uh, but we want to talk about the character of Adam this morning. Now, I, I consider it a real privilege that God gave us these first few chapters of the book of Genesis. You know, we always want to know where we come from. We talked about doing ancestry research and stuff like that. You know, God has blessed us by inspiring these words to tell us how man was created and how we find ourselves in the situation and our relationship between man and God from the very beginning. And that's a great privilege. And I'd like for us to read that together this morning and I want you to read this with, with some reverence to understand that this was a gift from God. God gave us these words so we could understand how we relate to God. God gave us these words so we can understand why we stand with God the way we do today. So please open your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to do a lot of reading in the scriptures together. And so I'm not going to put those scriptures on the board. But we're going to start reading from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 24. So please pull your Bibles out. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start on the sixth day of creation. So 
Um, if you want to skim real fast, go ahead and read those first 23 verses, and you can read how the whole world was created. And then we're going to skip over to verse 24, where we talk about the sixth day when man and all the beasts were created. In verse 24, it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So as we read this, uh, and, and as you read the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, you can see there's a little bit different verbiage used whenever God talks about creating man than when he talks about creating the rest of creation. You know, when he talks about making uh, the sun and the moon, he says, he just said, he said the word and it was there and it was good. But whenever he talks about creating man in verse 26 there, he kind of talks about the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost gathering there together at creation and saying, we're going to make man together. We're going to put this together. We're going to make him in our image. And he is going to be in dominion over all the earth. Now, what an honor is that for mankind? You know, God made a lot of wonderful things in this earth. And we see a lot of the wonderful, amazing things that God has done and that God has created. And he sat down and said, I want to make this creation in my image. There's honor number one. And I want him to have dominion over the earth. You know, that's something not to be taken lightly. God has bestowed this power and this honor upon mankind, upon us. This power and honor that goes above anything that he gave to any other creature he created, any other thing he created on this earth. He gave that to us specifically. Now, what does it mean for us to be created in his image? This is an important thing for us to understand. What does it mean that we're in the image of God? Does that mean that God looks a lot like me? Well, no, that's not the case. That's uh, that'd be very disappointing probably for a lot of people, right? You know, it's not saying that God had two arms and two legs and a head and stuff like that. We know that God is a spirit. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Now, I'm going to use a, a silly example, but does anybody recognize who that is? I think pretty much everybody here would recognize that that is an action figure of Superman. Now, is that really Superman? Is this image, uh, this action figure, is it able to fly around the earth? Is it uh, faster than a speeding bullet? Is it able to soak in the yellow sun of the earth to gain super strength? Is it able to have laser vision? Is it able to have all those things? We know that only in our imaginations could that action figure have any of those capabilities. But then we think about the real Superman, the actual Superman who's flying around and accomplishing all those things. And, you know, this is just a silly example, but... I think that the comparison helps us grasp how we are in the image of God. You know, God created us in his image in a way that he gave us a spirit. Now, God's spirit is huge and gigantic and all-powerful, all-knowing, all-doing. God is the most powerful, and he is power in definition. And he gave us a spirit, which is a small representation of what God is himself. Now, that spirit, that soul that we have separates us from all the other animals. But we're just a mere representation of a, of a piece of the nature of God. We have a piece of that spirit of God within us that he breathed into Adam when he was created. Now, think about the difference between the power of Superman and the power of a little piece of plastic that looks like Superman. Now, that's 
that's a, a big difference, but that's even pales in comparison to the difference between us and God. You know, we're but just a small image that you can see the evidence of God within us, and you can see how God works through having a, a spirit and soul within us, but that still pales in comparison to the power that God truly has. And, and like I said, the difference between these two just still is so insignificant compared to the difference between the power of God and the power that we have in our spirit and our soul. But it says that he made us in his image with that special peace in us that's not in the rest of his creation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, "...hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath pointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high." Talking about Jesus here, in Hebrews, he says, "...Jesus is the express image." Now, if you look in the dictionary... Uh, in, in a Bible dictionary, the image is just kind of like a representation or a likeness to God. We are created in a likeness of God. The express image means basically an exact copy that, that God was with us. So uh, if you think about us being in the image of God, Jesus, as he lived his life here on earth, and he lived a sinless man, he lived perfectly, he was able to come and redeem the souls of all mankind, that is the express image of God the exact copy of God. So it shows that God, that Jesus was God with us here on this earth. So it's important for us to understand when, when he says made in our image, that's talking about our soul and that we've been given a soul and that our soul should seek to be more and more like Christ. That, that was the express image of God here on earth. And the, and the last thing he says there is that man was created in a way that was to have dominion over the earth. And we'll read more about that here in a second. So as we continue, let's continue in verse uh, 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God gave, uh, said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, <clears throat> and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth on the earth. Two commands he gives them here. He says to to be fruitful, multiply, to subdue and have dominion. So subdue literally means to conquer. So God created us in a way that we could uh, conquer and rule this earth and rule all the beings that are in this earth. Now, that's a, a great honor, as we had talked about earlier. But God created us with that purpose and gave us that power to fulfill all those things. In verse 29, it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb, Bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for me, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb meat, and it was so. So God gave Adam food for himself and all the creatures of the earth. Adam didn't have to go around and try to gather up feed for all the animals. He didn't have to go plant things for himself. The food was just there, and it was just there for the taking. And all things on earth were fed by God in fullness there. Continuing in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God created all these things. He created the first man. He created Adam here. And at the end of all that creation, he said, This is all good. This was a good thing. Now let's go over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. 
skip over to the other side of the page there. This is going to give us a little more detail of that day of creation. It says, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Just a little more detail. Think about how different the earth was at this time. It says that um, there wasn't even rain or anything. That water just appeared from the ground and, and watered all the plants and took care of all those things. It says no man was tilling the ground. No man was doing anything like that. It was just a place full of fruit and herb that would take care of everybody in the world and everything in the world. And uh, as we look at that, it, it says that God created him by bringing him up out of the dirt and breathing in life into Adam. Now, I think this just shows that God used his creation, he used the same matter that we have on this earth to create our bodies and to create the body of Adam here. And what set him apart again was him breathing that life into him, breathing that spirit, creating him in the image of God. And it became a soul, it says. In verse 8 it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God uh, to grow every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God planted a garden specifically for Adam and placed him in that garden, and he was to tend that garden. Skip down to verse 15. It says, And the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, and the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So God places Adam in here. He gives him a job to do. He says, You just need to tend to the garden. Uh, and, I, and I kind of imagine this as simply just him going in the garden and picking whatever he wants and looking at the beauty of the garden, just tending to the garden in that way. And then uh, as he's given that job, he's given one task, and that's don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's only one rule here. You just need to tend to the garden and don't eat of that tree. We remember how that one ends, but we'll read it here in a second here too. In verse 16, or in verse 16 is when he makes that commandment. And let's get down to 18 now. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground of the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So he talks about how Eve was created here. Now, I think it's an amazing thing to think about Adam seeing every single animal in the world and naming every animal and not finding companionship. Now, we joke these days about a man's best friend being the dog, and you know the, the man can find all the companionship he needs just from his dog, his loyal, trusty dog that stays by his side. 
But that just wasn't the case. You know, that's not the, the facts there. You know, God said Adam sat down and looked at every animal of the field, and there was not a helpmeet for him. There was not a companion for him. And so God made the woman from Adam's rib. In verse 25, it says, And they were both naked. The man and his wife were not ashamed. Now, thinking about the world that Adam lived in here, you know, God created everything specifically for him. And as we look at the summary of Adam's life at the time, God formed Adam in the image of God with a soul. He honored Adam with the authority over all the creation of the earth. He had all power over everything in the earth. He created a perfect garden for Adam to live and to work in. He provided good food for Adam to eat. He created a companion and a marriage for Adam. He allowed Adam to live a life with no shame. And that last verse we just read, it said they stood there and they were unashamed. He gave Adam one rule to abide by, and he gave Adam a free will to make choices. You know, if you talk about living in the perfect world, this is literally a man living in the perfect world. God created all these things just for this man. And he's done all these things just for this man. He's been given all power, all authority in the earth. He's been given all these things, and uh, he has all those things. However, we know that this wasn't enough for Adam. He lived in a perfect situation. Now, many times when we find ourselves tempted and we find ourselves phasing sin, we think that we're just victim of our situation, right? You know, I wouldn't have committed this sin. I wouldn't have done this thing or I wouldn't be in this situation if I didn't have this problem or if I didn't have this problem or if I didn't have this problem. Well, Adam didn't have any problems to point to here. He had a perfect life. Everything was perfect for him, yet we still know that he sinned. You know, he was given power, as we see in those first two. He, he had a soul, which set him apart from everybody else. He had power over things in the earth. You think about, he didn't have any needs in life. He had a perfect place to live. He didn't need any bigger house or shelter or anything like that. There was nothing to shelter from. He lived in this perfect garden that had all the food he needed. You know, he literally had the, the best wife in the world that was the most loving, the most caring, the nicest, the prettiest, the best woman in the whole world was his. And uh, he was the best man in the world for his wife. And he could say that honestly. Um, and then um, God allowed him to live a life without any regrets or shame or, or second guessing or anything like that. Now, I'm trying to think, you know, did, did Adam and Eve ever get in a fight when they were tending to the garden before that sin was committed? Uh, before chapter 3. Did they ever get in a fight out there? And I don't know if they ever would have. I, I don't know that they would ever felt wrong because they didn't have a feeling of wrong and right. They didn't understand that. So just dwelling perfectly in a perfect place designed for them with all power and given one rule, and that's to not eat of that tree. But we know that even though he was a, a perfect man and a perfect life at the time, sin found its way to the world. And that has Huge repercussions for our lives today. Let's read in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, let's start in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, 
and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and she did eat, and he did eat. So, you know, we we know this story, but one of the things that I hadn't really thought of or thought about much before uh, preparing for this sermon was um, that Eve knew the commandment from God. Now, if you read earlier. We don't have a record of God telling Eve that commandment. Now, that commandment was given to Adam before Eve was created there in chapter 2. So God told Adam, you should not eat of this tree. And then a bunch of other stuff happened. He names all the animals. He sees all the animals. He identifies that he needs to help me. And then Eve is created. So we know that Adam, uh, or I guess we can uh, safely assume that either God or Adam told Eve this. But I would think that Adam told Eve, the rule here is that we don't eat of that tree. And in practice, in their lives, as they're going about the garden and they're tending the garden, they eat of the fruit of the garden, but they never ate of that tree together. And as they go around and go about their lives, they know they've established that boundary. That boundary was there, and she acknowledged that boundary. However, it just took this serpent to come and ask her to challenge that acknowledgement that she had in her life. This simple temptation to eat of that apple took hold of Adam and Eve the same way that sin takes hold of us today. It really is an origin story of sorts because the way that it happened there is the exact same way that it happens to us today. They had a lust. They looked at that and it says that she saw that the tree was good for food and the woman saw it was desired to make one wise. She had two reasons there. It looks looks good and it's going to make me wise, so I'm going to do it. The temptation to be like God. So we know that she partook of that and she gave to Adam as well, and they both sinned against God. Now, this wasn't just a defining moment for them. This was a defining moment for the way the world works and the way that we have a relationship with God as well. They took a, a, a perfect world and polluted it with sin. And that's a pollution that could never be completely removed from the, the nature of humanity and the world. And... It's very disappointing to see that, and it's really a tragic thing to think about. Think about a perfect place. What a wonderful place that was that Adam lived. And it's just so tragic that he threw all that away for this knowledge of good and evil. You know, do you think that he ever longed for the day when he could stand in the garden unashamed? You know, he had a lot of shame, I'm sure, come up after that. A lot of guilt, a a lot of things came up. After that, sin was introduced. I can imagine if anybody felt guilt, uh, Adam and Eve had to have felt guilt stronger than anybody else ever did in this life. To, to know that that was messed up. And then whenever their children come along and their children start fighting with each other, fighting with each other in the worst way until one kills the other one. Can you imagine how mom and dad felt in that? It's really hard for them not to say, well, this was our fault. You know, God told us we could be fruitful and multiply. We could multiply this earth and rule over it in peace without shame. And here, because of the thing we did, here our children have fought. I imagine they had immense grief, immense guilt in their lives. But this changed things for everybody. In verse 7 it says, And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They had that guilt. They saw that they were naked. They said, we need to put some clothes on. 
They sew those fig leaves together. They make themselves some aprons, it says, and then they go hide from God. Now, isn't that ridiculous that they thought they could hide from God? (laughs) God created this whole earth, and he's got two people to look after, and they thought that they could hide from him in the bushes when he set them there in that garden that he created for them. It just seems ridiculous. But, you know, sure enough, that's what their guilt caused them to do. You know, whenever we find ourselves in sin... It's a lot easier for us to rationalize in our mind that that does not harm God, that God doesn't see that, that that doesn't affect the way that we have a relationship with God. And then we see this one action of them eating this apple. We see the power that it had with their relationship with God. You know, whenever we try to hide our sin from God, when we don't acknowledge that to God and ask for forgiveness, ask for his help through those situations, it's just as ridiculous as Adam and Eve going and sitting in the bush and thinking that the almighty creator of the world couldn't see them sitting there. It's exactly the same for us today. That nature has not changed. That's something that has stayed the same since the time of Adam. In verse 9 it says, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard the voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou should not eat? And the man said, The woman who thou gavest me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. It's got to be heartbreaking Verse 9, where he says, where art thou? You know, God knew where Adam was, but he says, Adam, why are you hiding from me? Why have you separated yourself from me? You know, that's exactly what Adam did. He separated himself from God. This God that loved him, this God that created everything for him, that put everything perfectly for him and took care of him and loved him. And Adam separated himself and God said, why? Where are you? Where have you gone? What have you done? And he said, I hid myself because I was naked. And I was afraid. Very sad thing there. But what does he do when God asks him, why did you do this? He points blame. Well, the woman made me do it. And what does the woman say? Well, the snake made me do it. Nothing's changed. (laughs) Still happens. Still blame other people. But did it matter? No, who did God ask? He asked Adam what was happening. He didn't ask Eve. We'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later. But he held Adam accountable for that sin, even though Eve was the one that was beguiled by the serpent and gave to Adam. I don't know if Adam knew where that apple came from. I don't know if that apple looked different from the other apples in the orchard or if he was deceived and, and Eve just gave him an apple that looked like a regular apple and he ate it. Like, uh, you know, uh, which princess is that? I don't know which one it is. Uh, Snow White, maybe. Uh, that just ate the apple that looked normal that, that was poison. You know, do, you, do you think that maybe that's the case? It doesn't really matter. God held him accountable for it. God held Adam accountable for eating that fruit that was forbidden, even though Eve was the one that, that uh, really was at fault if we look at it. And then Eve, it didn't matter if the serpent talked her into it. She's the one that still did the action of eating the apple. The blame didn't matter to God. It still changed the way that God would have to deal with them. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field upon the belly. Thou shalt go, and thou shalt eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And Adam, 
he said, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, hast eaten of the tree of which I have commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat of the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face uh, shall thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it uh, wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shall you return. So God follows through. And he pronounces this curse of death upon humans now and says, you know, Adam, you're going to work until you die. And when you die, you're just going to return back to the ground. That, that was what God said would happen. And God doles out the punishments here. Now, have any of us been unaffected by the punishments for this sin? Now, I think uh, every man in here probably feels the, the efforts of this, as I do, where you know, we're in a situation where in order to provide for our family, we know we can't just go outside and, oh, look, there's a tree with all the food I need for my family. I guess I don't have to do anything. That's not how it works. We all know that we have to work to feed our families, to provide for ourselves, to protect ourselves, to protect ourselves from elements, protect ourselves from others. And that's a curse because of the sin of Adam. And it says that we're going to be responsible for that until the day we die. And then we're just going to be back into the ground. That's a curse. How about any of the mothers in here? Were any of you affected by the sin that was committed here in the Garden of Eden? I guarantee every mother here was affected by that because it says the pain of childbirth and the grief that those things were brought forth definitely affected all of us. But notice, even through all this punishment that God doled out, He immediately gives a path for hope. He immediately gives a hope for a way to overcome this sin. In verse 15 there, We recognize that as the first prophecy of Christ. Verse 15, And I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God immediately, and I don't know if Adam saw that as hope. I don't know if Adam understood what that prophecy was. I'm not sure we can know that, but we know that for us, God immediately gives us hope after this sin was committed, that those things could be overcome, that that serpent could be overcome. Now, as we think about that cycle, nothing's really changed for us today. When we're tempted, that leads to us committing sin and disobedience if we're not strong, if we don't hold to God. And then that leads to death, leads to shame, leads to guilt. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, and that's what still happens with us today. In James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he has tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. I don't want anybody here to be under the assumption that God is the one that tempted Adam and Eve and set them up for failure there at the first sin. That was not the case. God does not tempt anybody with evil. He doesn't tempt any man. It says man is tempted when he's drawn away by of his own lust and enticed. Do you think that Eve was lustful for that knowledge? She saw it was worthy to make someone wise. And do you think she was enticed by that fruit? Of course, that's exactly what happened. God didn't make her do that. God didn't set her up for failure. God didn't set Adam and Eve up for failure. He loved them and he wanted them to succeed. He wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and to overcome the earth. They wanted them to do that, but they were drawn away by their own lust. It's the same thing that happens to us today. 
Now, as we think about that, it didn't take very long for man to hit rock bottom, did it? <laughs> man messed it up pretty fast. It didn't take us very long. But that's exactly where we come from. You know, that's the same kind of spirit that we have to deal with in ourselves today. And that's why we find ourselves born into a world that is not perfect. That's why we find ourselves born into a life uh, that is a struggle between worldliness and godliness. There's a separation happened here. And it's something that we always have to fight through. Now, one thing that is, uh, is kind of confusing to me is that this story, as tragic as it is, and as messed up as it has made the world up to this day, that still Adam is used as a figure of Christ. Now, why is Adam used as a figure of Christ? That just seems crazy to me after that. He's the, he's the guy that started this whole deal, right? He's the guy that messed this whole thing up for all of us. Now, how is he like Christ? In Romans chapter 5, would you turn over there with me, please? It's a long reading, too. I want you to uh, read through that and be able to reference it as we talk about it. If you would, turn over to Romans. The Bible talks about how Adam was a figure of Christ. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passes upon all men, for that all have sinned, for until the, the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offerance, so also is the free gift. For if though the offense of one, many be dead, but much more the grace of God and the, the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sin, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience were made sinners, so the obedience of one shall be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but the sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's basically saying there, over and over, in a slightly different way, is that by one man, that being Adam, that all this sin and all this terrible situation came up, it says just like that, by one man, all that sin could be put, a bit, put away. By one man committing one sin, this whole situation is upon us. And by one man who could come and commit no sin, that situation can be remedied. And that man being Jesus Christ. I think the first thing that I want to look at here is that in this passage, um, when you look at who he's talking about, he says, by one man, 
that man being Adam, sin came into the world. You know, Paul even is holding Adam accountable for sin coming into the world. Does Paul acknowledge that it wasn't just Adam, but that Eve was there too? And then also throw a little blame over on the serpent too? It doesn't give any of that. He just says that by one man, it was by one man's actions that sin came into the world. By Adam's actions, sin came into the world. He holds him accountable. Now, that's a really powerful thing, and that's a really scary thing for me, too. You know, Adam was placed with the burden of responsibility for the sin of all mankind. Now, that's a, that's a heavy load. But he was also placed with the responsibility for that, even though it was his household, maybe somebody in his household that messed up. You know, God holds men to a high standard when it comes to accountability for the well-being of their family and for the actions of their family there. Now, the, you can read in the Scriptures now that the son does not inherit the sins of the father and things like that, and I'm not trying to teach that by any means. But as fathers, and as a father myself, you know, it's a heavy burden that God has given us, a burden of responsibility to, to uh, you know, guide our families to follow after the way that God has set forth before us. Paul blames Adam for that sin. In the garden, remember, God asked, where is Adam? Asked Adam to account for he and Eve. Where were they in that garden? They were one flesh. They didn't look at Eve as a responsible party, even though, or the serpent as a responsible party. That doesn't mean that women aren't responsible for their actions or that women don't have any relationship with God. That's not the case. But just saying that men, uh, and especially a husband and his wife and a husband and his family, are held responsible for the guidance of that thing. You can, you can also look at you know, uh, the duty of an eldership and that the elders are going to give an account for their uh, duties as an elder and the way that they guided the congregation as well. You know, so, so it's just a, a level of responsibility that I think should be taken very seriously, and that's something that we learn from the story of Adam. However, that's not really the main point of the passage here. The main point is that what Christ has done for us is greater than what Adam did to us, necessarily, I guess you could say. You know, that one action that Adam did that tore this whole thing apart, that caused all this destruction, and all these things that we can see, you know, I would be the first to sign up to go live in the world of Genesis chapter 2. I would love to go live in that world. That would be an amazing place. It was perfect for mankind. That's not an option, though, because Adam sinned. But God, through the actions of one man, was able to fix that through the actions of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, it said, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned in the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So he calls Adam the figure of him that was to come, which is Jesus. Now, why would Adam be that figure? There's got to be a reason that's significant about Adam that makes us understand Christ better. And that's what he's saying there. They're using Adam to help us understand the significance of that moment, the significance of Christ. Why is he um, special in that situation, I guess? I think there are several special lessons that we can learn just from Adam about Christ in this situation. And there's four things I want to look at this morning. First of all, that Christ is relevant for all mankind. I think that's something that we learn from comparing the stories of Christ and the stories of Adam. Adam was the father of all mankind. If we all wrote our family trees out today like we talked about earlier, we know that Adam is at the base of all of us. Adam was the very first man. And we are all children of Adam in that sense necessarily in this physical world. Adam was the father of all mankind and sin affected all of us. Jesus is the savior of all mankind and his sacrifice 
has the power to cover all sins. Now, there's a, there's a reason why they used Adam here instead of Abraham. You know, the Jews, whenever they traced their genealogy, did a Jew trace his genealogy back to Adam? Now, the Jews stopped at Abraham. The Jews only went back to Abraham, and surely God gave Abraham a promise. But this promise of Jesus Christ and this redemption of Jesus Christ is relevant for all mankind, anybody who's a, who's a son of Adam, any person in the whole world. In verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. If we read in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' power Jesus' redeeming power is able to justify us from sin, to make us right with God. That power goes to all of the descendants of Adam. It goes to every single one of us. It doesn't matter what group you're a part of. It doesn't matter what race you're a part of. It doesn't matter anything about you. If you came from Adam, God's power can come to you. Jesus is relevant for your life. Another thing we can learn by comparing Jesus and, uh, and Adam is that there's only one God. Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. Jesus is not the Savior of the Americans or just the Nigerians or anything like that. There's not just a Christian God and then there's a Muslim God and there's a Hindu God and there's another God and the many past thing, as we've heard so many people say. But he is the one. Nobody's saying that Adam was just the father of some. And there was another guy who was the father of the Hindus, and there's another guy who's the father of the Muslims. We all came from Adam, and we all answer to the same God. Adam was the father of mankind, and Jesus is the one Savior of mankind. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4-6, through 6, "...who will have all men be saved, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time." The Scripture shows us this over and over, but it only works when you compare with Adam, right? There's no other character in the Bible you could point to and say this but uh, with this analogy, but because Adam was the first man and the father of all mankind... He can, sh- it can, he can be used to show us that if Jesus is like him, then Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. The next thing we can draw is that there's only one solution to sin. In the story of Adam, we saw that his sin led to uh, that prophecy of Jesus Christ. And it leads to the justification that we have through Jesus Christ. That there's one problem and there's only one solution to that problem. He doesn't suggest that there's any other ways to, to fix those things. And we look at the uh, verses over there in Genesis, in 15, 16, 17, 18, and also in 19 too. It just talks about the one transgression over and over. There's one problem, there's one problem, there's one problem, there's one problem. Now, do we sin in different ways today as well? Of course we do. But the whole problem was started with just one sin, that separation between man and God, the sin that Adam contributed to. And the only way that that can be resolved and, and, and fixed is justification through Christ, as Christ died for all. The problem with us is that we sin in different ways, and sometimes we think that those sins aren't enough to condemn us. 
But it just took the one sin, that one separation. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, there's only one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So there in Romans, as we are reading about that gift that was offered to us, the gift because of the one sin, the gift of redemption, the gift of grace that was offered by the one man as an answer to that. It says, again here in Ephesians, that there's that one thing that we need, the one answer to the problem. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father by me. There's not another path. There's not another way. There's the one way. There was one problem, and we've been given the solution to that problem. The last thing I think we can see through Adam, the story of Adam, is that Christ provides newness of life. In 1 Corinthians 15, they talk about this directly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting verse 21, it says, For since by man came death, and man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And skipping down to verse 45, it says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening of the spirit. It's kind of interesting there. They call Christ the last Adam. It's another interesting way that they refer to him there. Quickening of the spirit. Howbeit that it was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven, as is the earthly such are they also that are earthly, and as the heavenly, such as are they that are also heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So he compares Adam and Christ here again in saying that Adam you know, kind of defined what death was. He was created of the earth, and he died on the earth, but he had a spirit. And it says that, that Jesus had that spirit that was um, dwelling on past that. It was not the first which was the spiritual, but it was natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. So he talks about adding that second life. He talks about the newness of life that is possible. In verse 49 there, he closes and says, As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So not only are we like Adam, we bear the image of Adam because we have this body that was created of the earth, this body that's going to die on the earth, which says also through Christ, we can bear the image of Christ. We can bear the image of the heavenly through a renewing, a resurrection, a new life. You know, he was talking to the Corinthians about this because they didn't necessarily believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But you see, we have to have Jesus resurrected from the dead. We have to have a Jesus that was resurrected from the dead that just as Adam defined here on earth, you're going to die. We had to have Christ to come to this earth and say, if you're with me, you will rise. You'll have a new life. We had to have that comparison for us to understand and to see that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. He, he comes over the things that we know as man, the death that we understand as man, and he's overcome those things and that we can share in that newness of life. Now, as we look at these things in conclusion here, we see that Adam had a perfect life in a perfect world, but he was tempted, and that led to separation of us and God through sin. We see that Adam was held responsible by God for that sin, even though maybe it wasn't him directly uh, talking with the serpent and being tempted. He still committed that sin, and he was held responsible for that sin. And 
through his story, that story that we read this morning, we can see that Christ is relevant for all mankind. Just as all of us know this morning that we are sons of Adam, we know that Christ can be the fixer of that situation. Christ can take that sin away from our life. He can be our redeemer. We see that there's only one God. Just as there was one man that we all came from, there's one God that can resolve that situation between us. There's only one solution to the problem. There was only one problem. The problem is sin. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. The problem is sin, and God provided the solution. I will give my perfect son to come die on this earth to give his life a ransom for all that they could be justified and brought back, made whole with God. And that Christ is the one who provides that newness of life. We don't have to just die here and return to the dust and that be the end of it. But we have a hope of heaven. We have a hope of an everlasting life. We have a hope of that spirit, that special peace that God breathed into Adam, that God gave us that's separate from all the other animals of this world, that's different from all other creation. And that spirit can be revived, that spirit can be resurrected, and we can be raised in newness of life. I think there's a lot to learn from the story of Adam. As you think about those things this morning, you know, I, I still feel uh, sad thinking about the story of Adam, thinking about how much God loved him and how God provided all the ways for him to succeed, and he still made the wrong choice. You know, this morning, when you look at your life, if you're struggling with sin, God has given you everything you need to succeed. You have a God that loves you. You have a God that's watching over you. And he knows the struggles that you're going through, and he's provided a way for you to deal with that. He's provided a way for you to be made whole. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if you didn't take that opportunity? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if you didn't take the chance and, the, and take advantage of that love that was shown towards you to make a successful thing happen, to put away that sin and to become whole with God again? If you find yourself this morning in need of prayer or in need of washing away your sins in baptism, we ask that you come forward as we sing the song of invitation.